You know, every parent learns pretty quick the frustrations of trying to teach your kids obedience, right? Because, and, and, and it's true in the, in the teenagers, because what is one of the dif- difficulties that, that kids often have with obedience? Number one, they see what they want to see, and it's hard for them to see anything good beyond what they want. The other problem is, in their very limited understanding and experience of life, they don't understand why you're telling them no. And so they begin to ask questions, and you begin to, at least from my own experience, you begin to try explaining, well, this is why you shouldn't do this. This is why uh, you need to avoid this. This is why you shouldn't play with fire, et cetera, et cetera. But yet, if you're like me, and you're talking to toddlers, and let's maybe even say teenagers, they don't understand. They don't get it. And so finally, you have to get into this place where you finally say, look, just do as you're told. Look, just trust me. Why? Because I said so, right? And many times, we, we, we kind of enter into this, you know, you, at least I, in this kind of, you know, utopian view of parenthood that I won't, I won't have to say that. I'll be this person. But eventually you cave and you become that because I said so. Because you're just exhausted and you realize you're not going to be able to get through. Their just limited understanding isn't going to be able to see why their obedience to what I'm telling them is actually for their good. It's for their right. Now, the issue we often come into is a lot of times within our culture, when you begin talking about issues of obedience when it comes to morality or religion or God, there, there begins to become this, this recoil that takes place within us. That becomes, that's a very much of a taboo topic. In many ways, we, we don't want to do it because before we have any sense of uh, of obedience, it needs to be something that we really want to feel like we fully are on board with. We need to fully affirm that. And so if that obedience runs contrary to what our desires are, that becomes too harsh. It becomes too restrictive. In the end, a lot of it comes back to the fact that we simply don't trust. We view our knowledge of a situation to be of a higher understanding than Christianity, than God, than the Bible within us. You see, the just do as I told or because I said so works because a child trusts or at least hopefully learns to trust the parent that ultimately this is what they need to do. For us with God, there's so many things that sometimes we don't fully understand. We may eventually understand But in the moment, we don't understand. And if we don't have that trust of who God is, then oftentimes, even if we've been a Christian, we can struggle with that sense of obedience. Obedience doesn't seem like anything other than living in a police state. Something out of, you know, 1984 or Big Brother. And it seems harsh and restrictive. But that's not the biblical view of obedience, In our passage this morning, as we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 13, we deal with the consequences of not being obedient. We deal with that harsh reality of what do we do when we don't fully understand why we need to obey completely and not partially. 
why we can't modify God's commands to suit what makes us understand the way reality is. And this is somewhat of an uncomfortable passage. It's uncomfortable for me. And, and part of the reason it's so uncomfortable for us because is when we look at it and we see the judgment upon Saul that comes to him from his disobedience, it makes us uncomfortable because we realize I've done a lot worse than this. If this is judgment upon Saul, what does this mean for me? And so it makes us deeply uncomfortable. So because it makes us deeply uncomfortable, we want to acknowledge it's there, but that's not something that we really want to spend a lot of time meditating on. That's not something we want to spend a lot of time dwelling on because that makes us uncomfortable. And it's certainly not something then we're trying to talk to people about Christianity that we want to emphasize because we know right off the bat that that is going to repel them. That's going to cause them to recoil a bit. But actually, if we truly kind of peel behind the surface level, we can see it's actually an act of God who loves deeply and passionately. So we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 13. We're going to go ahead and begin in verse 1. And so here it says this. And Saul lived for one year, and then he became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan of Gibeah of Benjamin, the rest of the people he sent home. Every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that were at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Yeah, it's not turning, so if you guys would go ahead and just control that upstairs for me, please. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, and, and that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench into the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Now, what we see here, first off, is we need to understand there's a bit of a technical issue in the first one. And so if you're reading an NIV Bible, that first verse may look completely different. It's kind of a long technical issue and not something I really want to spend a lot of time on, and you would have to spend a lot of time. So if it's something you're, you're wondering about, just come see me after, after the service, and I can talk to you about why uh, the ESV and the NIV or perhaps a different translation are a little bit difficult. But what we see right away... Right off taking bat is Saul is now king. He is fully established and anointed as king, right? And so right off the bat, what does he do? He forms a standing army, which is exactly what the people wanted a king to do. They wanted a formal standing army to protect them from the enemies. So he creates a formal standing army of 3,000 soldiers. And so keep in mind, there was somewhere around 300,000 who had come up from the militia, that had, that had taken place. And so he pairs that down to 3,000 of his best fighting soldiers, so to speak. And so if you look at the map that is on here, what you see is he has 2,000 of his men there at that city of Michmash. Now the others is in Geba. Now 
Um, it, it gives that a Gabiah, a Benjamin, is what it says in the text, but most scholars believe it's the same place as Geba. Right there, Geba, and this was alluded to in previous patches in Sama, is a large Philistine garrison. It is a military outpost, a headquarters that gives, it's almost kind of like an aircraft carrier, what we would call in today's uh, you know, uh, geopolitics, the place where they can launch attacks, kind of control the area, so to speak. And so Jonathan, with his 1,000 men, go ahead and attack that garrison there at Geba. And so Paul's, or excuse me, Saul has 2,000 men close by in Michmash, and Jonathan attacks the other group at Geba. And they run, and they, they, they become very victorious. Now what's interesting is Saul. Saul then reacts in a way you would expect a king to react. Now I need to be careful here because not a single commentary I read made a big deal of this, but I think it's a big deal. So keep that in mind. Nobody else seems to agree with me, but I think this is a big deal. Um, what do you see Paul, Saul's response? He immediately wants to begin trumpeting it to all the people. I find it even kind of interesting because technically he's not even the one who led the attack. It was his son, Jonathan. But what is the result? Let everybody know Saul has had a great victory. Now, if you back up to chapter 11... When Saul had his truly great kingly moment when he was used by God to rescue the town from the Amorites, what did Saul come in? What is this? basically his final statement? The Lord has delivered the people. The Lord has brought salvation to us this day. And so he begins trumpeting. And so at least in my mind, you begin to see a little bit of issues right off the bat. He's beginning to act like a king, just like all the other nations, forming a standing army, beginning trumpeting his tactics, so to speak, within there. Now, what we also see is the Philistines, they're hot. They are mad. They, they're like, we're going to squash this bug and we're going to squash it quickly. And so the Philistines decide they are going to muster for war. And so that takes us to verse 5 uh, in the passage. And it says this. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore of the multitude. And they came up and they encamped in Michmash into the east, east of Beth Haven. When the men of Israel saw... They were in trouble, for the heat people were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks. And in the tombs and the cisterns and the Hebrews crossed the fords of Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. And so if we look at the map again, what we see is where Saul was there at Michmash. He goes to Gilgal. Now, keep in mind, if we go back to chapter 10, this seems to be important. When, when Saul was anointing, being anointed as king by Samuel, Samuel gives him these first instructions. Go do all that, the, that uh, your heart desires to do, for the Lord is with you. Then he says, go wait for me at Gilgal for seven days. And I will tell you what to do. 
And so there's debate, you know, how did he know to do that? The thing is, we don't fully know. But however, somehow, whether it's communication that's happened between them or something, Saul has moved his forces of about 3,000 troops from Michmash, where he was, over to Gilgal, there to muster his men because he knows the Philistines are going to respond. And so in response, the Philistine moves their massive, very intimidating army of mostly chariots to where they were in Michmash, right? So when you look at these numbers, there's a couple of things to help us understand. First of all, the chariots were there. This was, if you look at a picture of Michmash, this is actually really hilly country. And so from one standpoint, the chariots really wouldn't be that useful in that particular type of warfare. However, in ancient days, the chariots were used as major intimidation factor. And so basically, you brought your chariot group to basically say, we're the big dog, right? And we're going to flatten you. And so it, it works because what you see is this, you know, the 3,000 choice army that was chosen out of the 300. So these are the best of the best, so to speak. What does it say they do? They begin trying to find holes and caves to hide in. And those who don't find holes and caves, a lot of them, they cross the Jordan River, that Jordan Valley, and go onto the other side. They're getting out of Dodge because they're so scared at what is taking place. Now, why are these so scared? Why are they so trembling? Well, we, we find in verse 19 um, what is going on in the, in, in, the, in the passage here. It says, Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, List the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, his shickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of the shekel for sharpening the axe and for the setting of the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. So in other words... Not only did the Philistines have an extremely large army at their disposal with these scary chariots within them, the, the Philistines basically had a market on iron technology. And so they, whether through their power or just through their, their technological superiority, um, they had all these what, we, what you would call modern-day weapons, and they intentionally kept the Israelites from being able to have them. And so only of these 3,000 people, only Jonathan and Saul actually have what you would call proper fighting equipment. And so, yeah, they are scared. And so they're gathered there at Gilead, or Gilgal, excuse me, and the army is just dwindling. In fact, we're going to see that the army has dwindled from 3,000 to 600. So we take a look in verse 8. And now here's where it gets interesting and is in many ways the heart of the passage. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. 
And the people were scattering from him. And so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offerings, behold, Samuel came. Now, there's a great deal of debate within the scholarly literature whether Samuel was late. So in other words, Saul waited seven days and then you know, for example, on the eighth day is when he decided to go ahead and offer the sacrifices, or if it was on the seventh day, and typically sacrifice could, could be offered in the morning and the evening, and he, the morning had already passed, and so he had begun to offer the sacrifices in the, the evening, and it was there in the last moment that Samuel came. Um, I don't think we can actually know this. But regardless, regardless, Saul There's communication here that was going. Saul knew that he was not supposed to be the one to offer the sacrifice. Now, some people would counter, well, later on, you see David offer the sacrifice. Yes, but David was not specifically told by the prophet to not offer the sacrifice. This was not necessarily uh, instructions just for all kings, but he was told specifically in this act of obedience not to be the one to offer the sacrifice. So why did he do it? And Saul went out to meet and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come with the appointed days and that the Philistines had mastered, mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. And I have not sought the favor of the Lord. And so I forced myself. Isn't that the way? You know, really, I was just forcing myself. I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For when... For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out the man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Samuel to meet the army. And they went up from Gilgal to Gabeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with them, about 600. Now, one of the things we need to remember is there's a lot of details here. That it just gives us the bare minimum of details. There's a lot of details here we don't know. We don't know more specifics about the conversation beforehand. But we do, knew, do know that Saul knew he was supposed to go to Gilgal, we knew that he was supposed to wait for Samuel and that there was an appointed days. And so what Saul knew what obedience was to look like, okay? And so what you see from Saul is not that he was just trying to be this obedient person, but what you see is what really drove him was fear. He was afraid. He saw the people leaving him, and all of his insecurities began rushing back to him. These insecurities of, oh my goodness, who am I? I'm a terrible king. I should never be king. And so he is, 
when you are developing these insecurities like that, you're resting in yourself, you're not resting in God, and that is a recipe for sin. And that's what he begins doing. Not only that, he's afraid. And what you see is Saul has done something that's going to really rob him for the rest of his life. And he's going to turn worship into superstition. He's going to turn worship into superstition. And so he's not really trusting in God, but rather in these ritual acts. And that is is going to plague him for the rest of his kingship. He traded authentic worship for mere superstition. Now, the final thing is he also never really, at least that we see, takes responsibility. All he is is trying to blame. And that's a key difference. Some people say, well, what's one of the big differences between Saul and David? I mean, after all, David did pretty horrific things. And we're going to see when we move into the life of David, David was a deeply flawed individual. Absolutely he was. But when confronted, David was also had enough trust in the Lord to be repentant, to accept responsibility for his sin, to turn to the Lord for grace, for forgiveness. And so what do we see? We see the judgment of Saul. Now, it's important to remember what this judgment is. First of all, as we look at it, at least here, the judgment is that his kingdom will not be eternal. Now, that's important for a couple of reasons. Number one, at least at this point, he's not saying you're no longer going to be king. You're not king anymore. He's saying your lack of obedience means that your kingdom is not going to be eternal. Now, we had never really seen that promise to Saul, so we don't know if that was something that Samuel was talking about or if this was, you know, we don't don't know the whole details behind this. But as we look at at, at, at the judgment, what he's saying is, your, your throne, your line is not going to be eternal. It's not going to continue on. Versus had you obedient, been obedient, it would have. So, so that's the first thing that we see within there. And he hasn't lost his ability to be king. Nor, nor is this necessarily, you know, a lot of us, when, when we look at this, we want to ask questions that a lot of us feel with obedience was, well, does this mean he, was, he wasn't a, a believer? Does this mean he was no longer elect, part of the chosen people anymore? And that, this is dealing with his status as king, not with who he is individually before God, right? Now, later on, we're going to see more poignant. He's going to do basically the same thing again, disobey, disobey and Saul's going to say, the kingdom has now been ripped out of your hands. And so it's a, a very different than the judgment that's on him now. But it's, it's helpful for us to look and see what the judgment is on this point. But what we see is Old Testament scholar Bill Arnold made a point. He says, within this, what you see is an anatomy of sin that, quite frankly, we see so prevalent throughout the Bible and, quite frankly, anatomy of sin that we see often in our lives as well. And the first part of that anatomy of sin is we see the tyranny of the urgent tempts us 
It tempts us to, to allow the circumstances to overtake us. The tyranny of the urgent allows the circumstances to become to overtake. And we see that. We see, I see that in my life all the time. Unreflective and sin, I allow the pressure of the moment to make me want to lose trust in God, to feel like I have to make and I have to respond right then. My eyes are turned away from God. Second thing, in addition to the tyranny of the urgent, is self-doubt. What it does is it, it gives us a, a, a focus on ourself rather than a reliance on God. And so what we often do in those times is just what Saul does. We commit ourselves to partial obedience. We, want to, we don't think of ourselves as being disobedient because we're partially obeying. But the truth is we're compromising within there. And then thirdly, we rebel. We decide to take matters into our own hands. And then finally, the anatomy of sin is we fail to take responsibility. So, as we look at this, we see the armies in dire straits. Well, what happens? What happens as they gather for battle? Tune in next week. Chapter 14. And we don't want to rush past this, and it's easy to do so. Because this teaches us a very important principle that we really need to grasp and we really need to understand, and that is this, obedience matters. Obedience matters, friends. You see, so often in Christianity, a lot of times what we view it, what we pursue it, what, we, what, what sometimes our culture wants us to turn it into is nothing more than a get-out-of-jail-free car. Hey, I have walked this aisle I have given myself to life. I get this get out of free jail card. Yay, that's very freeing. And emotionally it is. But the heart of Christianity is so much more beautiful than that. Because if I give you a get out of jail free card, that's a great gift. Yes. But that's not relationally deep. You see, I can give you a get out of jail free card and I cannot spend any time with you the rest of my life. I've given you a great gift. You get out of jail. That's great. But I may never see you again. No, the heart of Christianity is far more rich and textured than that. It's not a get out of jail free card, but it's the idea and the wonderful beauty of the God who loves you so deeply. He forgives you in his grace, not just to avoid having to give you a spanking, but to be in relationship with you. To pull you into himself as a God who loves creation so much that he isn't just trying to figure out how he can avoid having to be mean, but how in his tender love he comes in and he takes back what is his from the darkness and the evil of this world. And he says, this is mine and I will make it beautiful. The heart of it is not just forgiveness but redemption that leads to restoration, that leads to the light overwhelming the darkness, overcoming it. He loves his chosen people. He loves his people too much for it to be as shallow as a get-out-of-jail-free card. And so why does obedience matter? Because Christianity is far more deeper than that. 
Secondly, obedience matters because as James Smith has so well demonstrated, we are what we love. We are what we love. You see, when we, we do that which we love the most, when we choose to disobey, when we choose disobedience, what we're doing is we're choosing what we love the most. And you might say, well, but I'm doing, I'm doing this because I'm being compelled to. Well, what that means is you love not facing the punishment from those who are compelling you more than you want obedience. So there is a hidden love within there. There is a hidden love that is in there. And so what we often think of is obedience and disobedience as these very stark polar opposites, black and white within one another. And so the life of disobedience is very, uh, very apparent. It's like something you would see in a, in a gangster movie or uh, the old west, you know, those old western movies where you got the white guy in the white cap who's always really good and the guy in the black cap who's always really bad and it's just really easy. But the truth is, it's far more subtle within that. It's far more subtle within that. And so what we love, and the enemy is often very happy to have those subtle places of disobedience that shapes us into loving something else and hiding it with partial obedience. Well, what am I going on about? Let me give you an example. What's one of the great things, one of the great sins that we love that, and I say we, I mean me, uh, within our culture is consumerism. We love our stuff, right? So often, if I'm being honest, when I'm feeling low, when I'm feeling like I need almost kind of a dopamine hit. What do I want to do? I want to go to Amazon. I want to buy something. And it feels good. I have probably close to 300 items on my Amazon wish list. Now, 95% of them are theological books. But I love buying them. I love it. Oh, it's good. It's a thrill. It makes me feel good for the moment. Now, I've got like a stack of like this of books that I haven't gotten to read yet. But I love it, that accumulation. I have this book. Look at me. Now, none of you guys care. But I'm, I'm a friend with a lot of theological nerds, and I get to flex on them with my books, right? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you guys, this guy's what? I don't get it. But anyways... <laughs> But you guys see that too. It feels good. We, so we buy something, okay? But what are we doing in that moment? We love the sense of buying something. We feel like that is going to be that which fulfills us, right? But here's the thing within that. As we do that, we begin to shape us that happiness is fulfilled by getting more stuff. Well, what does that lead to? Well, that leads to getting more stuff is where it's happy. And so the true life that is flourishing and fulfilling comes from the ability to buy stuff. And so we begin to value, per se, careers that enable us to have more money. Lifestyles that are pushed to the limit in debt. When we buy stuff, it creates this waste 
It creates impatience within us. And above all, it reduces our margin. The margin in, the, in our lives that enables us to be focused not on ourselves, but on others, on worship. And so we want to find communities and places that don't ask anything of us. Why? Because we don't have time to serve other people. We're too busy working. We're too busy playing with our stuff. We don't have time to be generous to others. We've used all of our money for our stuff. We don't have time to get to know people, to love people with all of our heart. We don't have time to enter into deep meditative Bible study. And as we, those margins disappear, the tyranny of the urgent becomes ever more tyrannical. And we become more and more imprisoned by it. What we love not only is a reflection of what our heart truly desires and puts it hope in, but it also shapes us. And what we have to understand is we live in a world that wants to shape us, not just with large concepts, but by everyday activities. The ease of, how, of Amazon. All these various things that become so subtle. Now, am I saying we have to take a vow of poverty? No, that is not what I'm saying. Again, I got 300 items on my Amazon wish list. Right? So I'm not saying that. But it is worth reflecting on as we look at our life, what is it that's really shaping us? Are there areas of obedience that we don't feel like we can do? And so when we can't do them, like have ability to be generous or to have time for others, our first response is, well, that's just life in the 21st century. When maybe it should be, is this reflective of something that's deep in our heart that isn't quite right? We are what we love. Now, the third reason why disobedience matters is, or obedience matters, is because disobedience enslaves us. Disobedience enslaves us. What do I mean by that? We often look at obedience and as almost like putting us into a police state, right? Oh, you guys. And I remember watching a comedian on a late night show and he was talking about, he's like, yeah, I go to church and I hear the preacher just preaching at me and, and telling me I need to get my life right. And I, and I feel that urgency, but man, I, I remember I got this bag of weed and let me just smoke this bag of weed first. And he just thought he was being funny. But that's really a reality that so whether we submit to that pushing off or not, that is our view, that God wants to take away all our fun. But what we don't realize is this. Disobedience is actually what enslaves us. 
And so you go around to counselor's office. You go around to pastor's office. You go around to anyone, teachers, anyone who is dealing and trying to make change in people's lives. And what you will see is how people who had given into things that they thought would give them freedom and fun and fulfill all their needs, their lives are being destroyed and they feel enslaved by it. It's not freedom, it is enslavement. We often think of what God is trying to do and setting up what is right and wrong is almost like, he's, like some sort of weird Japanese game show where he set up all these elaborate rules. Why? I don't know. Just follow him. He says so. In truth, what God is doing is he's setting us free to where freedom truly is. Now, What we see in Saul, his love, his slave, was his insecurities, looking to find insecurity for himself. He becomes enslaved to that, and it is his downfall. The, 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 um, the next reason why obedience matters is because obedience is a testimony to whom we belong. You see, we need to understand, nothing is neutral, including in our time. You see, sometimes we, we view... Our time is like, this is my, almost kind of the way we view our job, right? So often we take our identity as like an accountant, a, a banker, this and that. And so we view it as like, okay, this is my business time, but well, on the weekends, this is my time, right? And so sometimes we can kind of view that in our relationship with God. And so we, we develop this, this very foreign, that is not biblical idea, that there's the secular and there's the sacred. And so as long as I engage in periods of time that are sacred, I, just for, for, for our own sanity, I'm going to have to spend some time. That's just me time, right? But nothing is neutral. You see, it's not like a job, but rather it's like a family relationship. Think of it like this. You're a, you're a spouse. I'm a husband. I don't ever have a break from being a husband, Right? At least, I wouldn't still be living if I tried. <laughs> I don't get to say, well, you know, honey, we've been married for 21 years. I'm going to go take a weekend and just be single for a little bit. It doesn't work. And I don't want it to work. Being a husband, being a father develops every aspect of what I do, even my free time, my leisure time. When I watch a movie, when I'm watching Rangers, when I'm planning vacations, also when I'm planning my work. You see, here's the thing. When God own, takes us, we're either serving someone, we're serving the world, although the world doesn't necessarily make this boisterous claim, but it is making a claim upon you, saying you're either serving me or you're serving God. There is no in-between. There is no quote-unquote me time. Now, the good news is, with God, <laughs> he's not saying everything you need to do, it needs to be Bible study or being at church or prayer, but it is understanding that he is Lord over every moment. There's no sphere, to quote Abraham Kuyper, 
There's no sphere of your life in which God doesn't say, that is mine. And so when we're watching the Rangers, who it's nice, they're actually worth watching this year. When we're watching the Rangers, when we're watching a movie, that's still God's time and we're called to live life of obedience. Now, if obedience does not matter to us, then that's a huge red flag. Now, we've got to be careful here. We've got to be careful here because God's purpose in this is not to make us believe we can become right with him through our works of obedience and righteousness, okay? That is not what I'm trying to say when we say obedience matters. It is not trying to say that what you do dictates whether or not God loves you or not. Now, there's an enormous gulf between the person who is struggling with sin and the person who recognizes they're enslaved in sin but just doesn't care. There is an enormous gulf between that, right? And we also need to recognize that sanctification is going to look differently for each person, right? The Holy Spirit is going to work within us in all kinds of different ways and in all kinds of different speeds. What sanctification work looks like for me is going to look completely different from what it looks like for Debbie, and that's okay. And then the other thing we need to understand is there is sin in my life, I'm convinced of it, that I still don't even know yet. To, to quote Tim Keller, I'm more sinful than I could ever possibly imagine, but more loved than I could dare to dream. But again, to take this back and not to, to, to soften, if we completely do not care about obedience, then we have to ask ourselves, do we really know the Lord? If we have become a believer, the Holy Spirit is implanted within us. Now, there may be times of rebellion, and God in his grace will graciously bring us back. But the question is, and it's a question worth asking, it's a hard question. Again, the problem with this question is the people who are most bothered by it are usually those who are struggling. They're not the people who don't care, who are not flippant. Now, what does it look like to cultivate a life of obedience? And I'll move through this quickly. I know we're running out of time. First thing, and this is, this is of absolute importance, you enter into a relationship with God through grace of Jesus Christ. You see, if you're convicted, if you feel this conviction within there, you can't go back and say, okay, God, I'm going to clean myself up. I'm going to make it right, and you're going to love me. That's not how it works. You see, I hope that you're so overwhelmed by obedience that you're like, I can't do it my own. And you know what? You can't. You need the Holy Spirit. You need grace and redemption. And so the first step is for you to fully give yourself over to trust in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Enter into a relationship with Jesus by faith, trusting in him. Secondly, 
and this is very important, and this is for believers, you battle the shame of disobedience with the gospel. You see, when we fail, the, the enemy uses shame as a powerful tool to try to ensnare us in slavery to that sin. What it wants us to do through shame is to focus on ourselves and not focus on God. It wants us to become so completely lost in ourselves, whether it's in our guilt and beating ourselves up, that we're looking to ourselves and we're not looking to God. And in that shame, when we do begin to spend time with God in this, in, in this word or in prayer, we feel guilty. All we can feel is our shame. And we begin to cut ourselves off from the very source of life. And love. And so the antidote to that is in the midst of our shame, and this has to be on the front end, is to move, it, move into it with the power and the knowledge of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am right with God. I am justified by faith, not by what I have done. Moving, moving on, moving quickly. The third is to develop a biblical worldview. Develop a biblical worldview. You see, when we understand Scripture, when we see its meta narrative and its glory and its goodness, we find it beautiful. You will find it beautiful. Your heart will look and see it. It, it, it answers the questions we long for. And obedience will be less about trying to please somebody and seeing its beauty. You'll want to please God. You'll want to pursue God within that. Now, we need to be careful here. In our limited knowledge, we're never going to fully understand everything. And so we obey even when we don't understand. But by developing a biblical uh, worldview, when we understand humanity, when we understand why we were made and how God is restoring it, when we see the beauty of what does it mean that he made man, uh, man and woman, when we see the beauty of what sex was intended to be, we find it far more beautiful and satisfying than the, than the siren call of this world. Well, how do we develop a, a, uh, a, uh, a biblical worldview? Well, let me just say this. This comes from you entering into, tri uh, entering into Scripture, not from you simply taking the lazy way of trying to find a, a tribe. A person to just tell me what's good and bad. Right? Enter into scripture within there. Uh, I've got more on that, but we're going to move on for, for sake of time. Fourthly, develop rhythms of, communi of communion. What do I mean by that? Rhythms of communion. This is intentionally ordering our life in a way that places Christ before you at all times. So what that is, is that is in being intentional. Intentional with the way you space your life. And what do you do with that? You create margins in your life. And then with those margins, you fill them with the things that are constantly reminding you of God. So that's, with that margins, you're engaging in regular spiritual disciplines of Bible reading, of prayer, of reflective journaling with God. You're gathering with other saints for worship. You're cultivating a life of friends who speak truth into you. You're cultivating a life of serving others. This all is intentionality. And it comes to when we develop those lives, those patterns that enable us to see 
the beauty of what God is doing in this world. And then finally, finally, to cultivate a life of obedience, you need to regularly stand under God's proclaimed word. You need to really stand under God's proclaimed word. You need someone who will proclaim God's truth to you. Whether that's me from the pulpit, some other godly pastor, whomever it may be, and there are so many. You need to have someone who is confronting you as sin. Confronting you with God's word. Speaking truth, speaking the gospel to you. Pointing you off of yourself and onto Christ. Obedience matters. But the good news is the antidote to that that leads us isn't fear, but love. Love for God. Love for who he is. Finding him beautiful and being secure in his love for us. It isn't by beating yourself up, focusing on yourself, but rather focusing on Christ. And so whether you are wondering what does it mean to enter into a relationship with Christ or whether you've been knowing Christ for 50 years and you're struggling, take your eyes off of yourself and onto him. Do that today. Father.